Thank you, Lord. What a tremendous spirit of worship is in the house today. Thank you for your response in worship. If you'd stay standing for just a moment, we'll turn quickly to the book of Mark, chapter 1. We'll read a passage from Mark, and then we're also going to read one verse from the book of Matthew. Mark, chapter 1, starting at verse 16, it tells us that as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Now, what I understand today, if we read the Gospel of John, we have to recognize that this would not have been the first time that Jesus would have interacted with these brothers. But, but it was something different about this day because Jesus decides to interrupt their life as normal. He decides that he's not just going to let them keep going on throughout their day, that he's not going to pass them like he did to no doubt tens if not hundreds of others, but he interrupts their life as usual in verse 17 with a seemingly simple statement when he tells them, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And one of the incredible things of this story to me is that's all that we read. Now recognize it could be that we're not privy to the full conversation, but if I were the disciples in this moment, I would have had some follow-up questions. I think I would have asked for the fine print. I would have asked for a little more detail about what I am signing up for. But the way that we read this passage, verse 18, this was not the case. The thing that we find is that straightway or immediately these men forsook their nets and they followed after Jesus. As if that's not enough, he goes a little further down the shoreline. He sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the ship, mending the nets. And, and we're not privy to this conversation, but we imagine it's similar as he invites them on this journey of discipleship, invites them to come and follow him. And the Bible says that immediately he called them, and they didn't just leave their ship. They didn't just leave their servants. They didn't just leave their nets, but they left their father Zebedee in the ship, and they went to follow after him. This passage we read, I would refer to this as the call of discipleship. Everybody say the call. The call of discipleship. We fast forward three and a half years. It's the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Matthew 28, 19, he's given some final instructions to these same men. When he looks at them and he's charging them with what was going to happen next, and in 28, 19, he says, Now it's time for you to go, therefore, and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Another translation, this verse could be rendered out. Now you go make disciples. The call is to come and be a disciple. The commission is that we would go and we would make disciples. For just a few minutes here this morning, I want to preach to us from the subject, the making of a disciple. The making of a disciple. Would you just close your eyes for one moment and would you one more time let's ask the Lord to have his way in this house. God, we are so grateful for the power of your presence that has been in this place. Lord, we know that nothing that we do is worthwhile unless you're in the middle of it and we thank you for, for the presence that we feel in this room. But God, I pray for the next few moments that you would help us to focus in on your word, that your voice would somehow be the loudest voice that we would hear today. That God, you would get the glory in everything that we do. And at the end of the day, we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. You may be seated. As we consider this account of how Jesus called these first disciples, I think it's important and interesting for us to note that discipleship was not some new or novel concept that Jesus developed on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that day. But rather, discipleship was a common practice in the first century Israel. It was common, and the people would have understood the 
commonality of the rabbi or teacher, disciple, or student relationship. It was not uncommon for a rabbi or a teacher to carefully choose their followers and then to spend their entire lives teaching and training, imparting and sharing themselves, their values, and their principles with those who have chosen to follow them. In fact, when a rabbi would utter those words, follow me, both the rabbi and the invitee knew right well what was being offered in that moment. The person that was being spoken to understood that in this moment, the rabbi was doing more than just inviting them to lunch that day. The rabbi was doing more than offering to have a little sit down to impart a little bit of knowledge to them. He was doing more than just saying, enroll in my three-month master class. But what was being offered was much deeper than that. In that moment, with those words, follow me, the rabbi was offering himself. He was offering his life. He was offering an invitation for them to come on a journey of learning and formation, to become ultimately like the rabbi they had chosen to follow, learning from his wisdom, learning from his knowledge, learning from that experience in the hopes that they would develop and reflect the rabbi and one day may be able to invite others on the journey with them. So we find that when Jesus is at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he's thinking about how he is going to change the world. He's thinking about how he's going to lay the foundation for the church that we are a part of. And he's thinking, how do I get this thing to go global? In his mind, he says, I've got the perfect tool. It's the tool of discipleship. Everybody say discipleship. Because we find that when this process is repeated time and time again, discipleship ensures that teachings become multi-generational. Discipleship ensures that important doctrines and theologies and belief systems are imparted person to person, one at a time, and are passed down from generation to generation. This was discipleship. It was a commitment to follow and to learn from the Master. Now, when we read about disciples in the New Testament, we find that the Greek word that is used here is the word mathetes. Everybody say mathetes. If you need to impress your coworkers tomorrow, you can just pull that right out of your pocket and just share a little Greek with them. So the word mathetes, it means student or learner or pupil. It is. It's this idea of a student, but in all actuality, it's a little deeper than that. A proper translation of a mathe taste may be deeper than just being an average ordinary student, but rather it could be translated as an apprentice. Somebody that was a dedicated follower or strict adherent to the teachings of some wise teacher. The picture we get of a disciple is not that of a student who enrolled in the class only to show up late every single day. Not that of a student who paid all their money and paid all their dues only to come and sit on the back row and be ambivalent to the teachings of the teacher. But the picture of a disciple is that of the teacher's pet. Might remember them in the class? That student that almost annoyingly was always the first one that was there. They had the front row seat and they were hanging on every word when the class had a little bit of a break. Where was the teacher's pet? But off in the corner trying to have conversation with the teacher. They were hanging on every word. They wanted relationship with the teacher. And maybe if you even asked them, they would tell you that teacher is a hero of mine and I would aspire to be like the teacher. This is a disciple. This is a mathetes. One of the important things for us to understand this morning is that in the context of the times, a disciple was more than somebody who just knew about the teacher. 
was more than somebody that if you asked them by the water cooler on Monday, hey, did you hear about that guy named Jesus? They could say, yeah, I read a news article or two. Was more than somebody that just knew a couple stories or knew a couple things about the teacher, but it was somebody that had entered into close proximity and relationship with the teacher. It was somebody that was not following from a distance, but somebody that was strictly following and pattering their lifestyle after that of the master. A disciple was somebody who was willing to alter the way they were living to meet that of the master. This was the goal of discipleship. It was the goal from the outset. There was no bait and switch here when Jesus calls these men on this journey. He was not trying to promise them one thing and then it turn out to be another thing. In fact, in the text that we read, we find that he makes his plan very clear in the first statement he makes when he says, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. He says, I want to invite you on a journey where the end result is I am going to transform you into something else. I'm inviting you on a journey where the end result is I'm going to produce something new in you. I'm going to fashion you and form you into who I need you to be. See, discipleship implies a hands-on intentional formation process where Jesus says, I'm going to take you from where you are today. And after you spend three and a half years with me, at the end result, you're going to be what I need you to be. I also think when we consider this idea of discipleship, it implies to me that Jesus did not call those men that day because they immediately fit the bill of everything that he needed in that moment. Jesus did not call those disciples because they had every I already dotted and every T already crossed. He didn't call them because they were perfectly aligned with everything that he would need. But he said, I see in you destiny that you don't see in yourself. You may not be able to see it right now, but I'm seeing who you are today. But more than that, I'm seeing what you can become if you will enter into a relationship with me. For somebody this morning, be encouraged that Jesus is not inviting you into relationship with him because you are perfect in this season today, but rather Jesus is peering into your future and he sees the hope of a brighter tomorrow. He sees destiny that you can't see in yourself. He sees what you can become, not because of your giftings, not because of your talent, not because of your ability, but because you've got relationship with the master when he calls you into discipleship. He says, spend time with me and you will become like me. It was not based on their perfection. It was not based on their righteousness. It was not based on their holiness. The call was not based on their good works, their giftings, their talents, or their abilities. It was based on one thing and one thing alone. It was based on their willingness to follow Jesus. Their willingness to become like him. This is discipleship. Discipleship is a lifelong process of spiritual formation where the end result is Christ-likeness. Discipleship is the forming of our faith. It's the building of a belief system and worldview that will sustain us through the entirety of our lives. The goal of discipleship is that we become like Jesus. The goal is that we become like him, that we might spend an eternity with him, and along the journey that we might bring others into discipleship as well. 
We find that the call of discipleship did not end when Jesus called those men on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, but rather today as we sit in the sanctuary, the same call to come and follow me is still being issued, that Jesus is still standing here extending his hand, saying, I am calling you into deep relationship with me. I'm calling you to come and to follow me. I'm calling you to discipleship. I'm calling you to be a disciple. And can I tell you this morning that discipleship is the greatest call that you could ever answer. Greater than a call to preach is the call of discipleship. Greater than a call to church plant is the call that you would be a follower of Jesus Christ. Greater than a call to go on the mission field is the call that you would enter into deep relationship and that you would spend your life following the master and becoming more and more like him. Above all else this morning, I'm here to remind us that we are called to be disciples. Everybody say disciples. Disciples. When we read the Gospels, we find some interesting nuggets that I believe paint a picture of what answering this call of discipleship actually looks like. We go back to the first verse that we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. We find that Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, are casting nets into the sea. Can you put that verse back up? Mark 1, 16. Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Now, there's a couple years ago I was reading this, and I was spending some time studying disciples, and I read this verse, and I'll be honest with you, those last four words there threw me off. Not because of what I felt like I learned from them, but because I felt like they were unessential. I didn't feel like they were needed. In my mind, I wanted to say, well, duh, Mark, you just told me that they were casting nets into the sea. In my mind, I'm thinking, Mark must have been in college. Mark's teacher told him, you got to turn a paper in that's 2,000 words. Mark's sitting there at 800 with nothing more to say. So he's going back through, and he's like, so he gets to the end of this statement. He's like, Simon and Andrew, his brother, are casting nets into the sea. Before they were fishers. <laughs> we're good now. Got four more into the word count. Like this doesn't seem necessary. It seems, it seems like just extra words that don't reinforce anything to the story. But the more I begin to think about this verse, the more I am convinced that this was not an unintentional effort on the part of Mark. But I am convinced that Mark knew exactly what he was doing when he penned these last four words. He was trying to convince us, the reader, that these men were, in fact, fishers. On the surface, it seems like a useless, pointless statement, but what he's trying to get us to understand is that that day, they were not out there enjoying the Galilean sea air as a hobby. That fishing was not something that they did for fun. Fishing was not an extracurricular activity. Fishing was not a side gig or a hobby. Fishing wasn't something they did on the side of their day job. Fishing was not something they did. Fishing was who they were. These men were fishers. In fact, I would argue that fishing is all they had ever known. It was the very DNA of all they had worked to be in the context of the time. It's very likely that they weren't just fishers, but that their father was a fisherman. Their grandfather was a fisherman. Their great-grandfather and many generations before. It's likely that they were sailing on the same ship. They were casting the same nets. They were fishing the same holes. Fishing was the very aspect of who they were. It was their identity was not something they did. It was who they were. So we ask the question, why is that important? It's simply because of the next statement that we read. 
As the story continues that after Jesus calls them to come and follow him, the very next thing that we read is those men are holding some nets and we find that they forsake their nets to go and follow after Jesus. Now you can disagree with me and that's fine. But in my opinion, if I were a commercial fisherman in that day, I would argue that there was no tool of the trade that was as important to my ability to fish and do what I was supposed to do as a net. See, if I were just fishing for a hobby and I was fishing to put food on my table that night, I could do that with a rod and a reel. If I were fishing without a boat, I imagine if I were good enough, I could figure out how to wade out into the sea a little bit and cast a net and be able to harvest what I needed to to have my livelihood and to survive. But I would argue that the single most defining characteristic of a fisherman was they had to possess a net. And so it becomes important that when Jesus calls them to become a disciple, we find these men forsaking that old identity of all they had ever been and making up their mind that this is what I used to be. But now I've had a moment where Jesus called me into a new identity. I will no longer be defined as a fisherman, but I will be defined as a disciple. See, it didn't mean they would never pick up a net again. It didn't mean that the gifting and the talent and the ability was not still there. But what they were symbolically saying is that when you call my name, it's no longer going to be in context to my ability to fish. That's something I used to do. That's an old identity. But from here forward, I want to be known as for my relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ, there was a change of identity that happened when they forsook those nets to be a follower of Jesus. You see, the problem today for many Christians is that they've determined that being a disciple is a priority for them, but they have not yet settled the issue that it is the very central core of their identity. It's a priority, but it's not our identity. You can put that first slide up. I find kind of in my life, this is what it looks like, disciple as a priority. For many of us, maybe this is how we would write it out, that above all else, my first priority is that I'm a disciple. Then underneath that, I'm also a husband, a dad, a son, a brother, a friend, a preacher, a boss, an employee, a teammate, a student. These are all different roles that I carry. And so we say, I've made up my mind that being a disciple is a priority. We've thrown it on a list. But the problem with limiting discipleship to a priority is that all of these things are roles that I step in and out of as needed. That in the morning, whenever my kids are getting up, I'm wearing my dad hat. I'm taking care of my kids. I'm helping mom to the best of my ability. But when I drive out and I step foot into my job tomorrow morning at around 9 o'clock, I've set my dad hat aside for a second because now I've got to put on my employee and my boss hat. And whenever I leave and I head home and I walk through the door, I put that to the side and I step back into the role of being husband and father as it demands. The problem is that when disciple is nothing more than a priority, we begin to step in and out of the role of disciple as we see if it fits the situation. So when I'm on my way to church on Wednesday night because I know I've got to teach the Sunday school class, I begin to put my disciple hat back on. Whenever I show up on Sunday morning because I know it's church time, I put my disciple hat on. But when I I drive home in the afternoon, I'm tempted to set that aside as I begin to step into all the other roles. It's, It's a priority, but it hasn't yet become some of our identity. The second slide, you can put that one up. This is what it should look like. 
That disciple is not just one of a list of roles that I carry. But when disciple becomes the essence of your identity, the central thing that, that defines you, all the other things begin to take shape around the fact that I've made up my mind I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Hear me, young person. You are not a student who attends your school who happens to also be a disciple. You are a disciple who happens to go to the school that you attend. And when you've made up your mind that that's the case, when I walk into that school, I'm not easily pulled this way and pulled that way because disciple is not a priority. It is my very identity. So all of my decision-making, all of my, my processes, all of my plans bow to the core of who I've decided to be. Hear me, parents. We are not moms and dads who parent our kids and happen to be a disciple part-time. But God help us that our discipleship would be the primary driver of our identity. So when we are parenting our kids, it is through the influence of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not a piece of who I am. It is the central defining characteristic of my very identity. We see this principle again in Matthew 19 where Jesus is reaching for identity. This is all about identity. As we compile all of the accounts of the Gospels, we find that it's almost as if he's about to leave the scene. He's going to his next place when this man runs out of nowhere. Maybe out of breath, he's trying to get his question into Jesus real quick. And he pulls him aside and, and Jesus recognizes him. We call him the rich young ruler. He recognizes him for his position. Context would tell us that it was likely that this man was described as young, so he had risen through the ranks very quickly. Being a ruler, this wasn't just meaning he was a business leader. It was likely he was a spiritual leader in the synagogue. And he comes to Jesus and he says, all of the commandments I've kept since my youth. What more do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. He says, I'll tell you really easily. He said, go and sell all that thou hast and give it to the poor. Thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. There's those words again. Those words, many theologians would suggest that that specific wording was significant. That this wasn't just an invitation to be one of the crowd. But had this man made a different choice, it could be that we would have read his name alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was the invitation to the inner circle to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. But verse 22 tells the rest of the story. It tells us that when this young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Unfortunately for him, the call of discipleship was just too cost, costly, a cost to pay. But I asked the question this morning, at the core of this story, was it really about the money? Was it about the finances? Was it about his wealth? And I would argue that no, the core of this story was not about the money, but it was about identity. We know this man as the rich young ruler. His wealth was attached to his identity. His wealth was a source of value and affirmation. I believe that the question Jesus was really asking is, are you willing to give up being the rich young ruler to become the dependent faithful follower? Are you willing to step out of that old identity where you've been in control and you're used to speaking and people respond to begin to enter the journey of following after me? It was all about identity. 
See, for some of us, we sing these songs in church and, and we mean so well, because I do it too. We sing these songs like, I give myself away. Give myself away so you can use me. When in reality, if we were honest, that song, we would sing it a little more like, I give myself away. Give myself away except for this little piece over here that I really like because it's attached to my value and it's a part of my identity. But I give most of me away, Jesus. I give you some of me. I give you some of me. My question today is, what is it? In your life, I can't answer the question for you. I can answer it for me. But what is that thing that Jesus is saying? I'm desperately desiring to take you to the next level. I'm desiring to bring you to a new place. I'm desiring to use you in a new ministry. I'm desiring for you to become all that I have asked you to be. But what is that net that you're still gripping with all your might, saying, God, I'm willing to give you everything. Just don't ask for this over here. And I tell you that if you ever make up your mind, that disciple will not just be your identity or your priority, but will become your identity. It will change everything about your life. Very quickly, I want to share three forces that form a disciple. We have to recognize that we are becoming disciples of something. We are being disciples of something. We're being discipled either by culture or by Jesus, but we're disciples of something. Three forces just that I think help make a Christian apostolic disciple. The first force is scripture. Everybody say scripture. I would argue that in discipleship, the way I'll call this is there has to be a source of truth. Everybody say truth. There has to be a source of truth. There is a model. There is a template. There is something we are aspiring to be like. There is a pattern that we are trying to go after. And for us, that is scripture. That is Jesus Christ. We are trying to model our lives after him. The problem today is that we live in a culture whose mantra is all about my truth. My truth. We hear them say, I'm speaking my truth. I'm living my truth. But the problem is, is that by definition and by its nature itself, truth is not multiple. But truth is singular. And truth is not subjective. Truth is established. I used to play this game. I teach Bible studies on a college campus, and we start talking about relative truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Just let us live. We can coexist. There's many ways to get to heaven. And so we'd begin to play this game. Play it with me. I'd ask a simple question. I'd take us back to grade school, where my favorite type of question was true or false questions. Anybody, anybody in the house? I might be the dumbest kid in the class, but I got a 50-50 shot on this one. Okay. So we play this game, and I'd ask something like, true or false, Abraham Lincoln was the first president of the United States. They'd say false. We go down the list, I'd say, I'd say, Bill Clinton was the first president of the United States, true or false. Joe Biden was the first president of the United States, true or false. George Washington was the first president of the United States, true or false. And they say true. Somebody said it really emphatically. I know this one. <laughs> but we play this game. And the point I would make is I can make up as many false answers as I want. I could have even been taught that Abraham Lincoln was the first president of the United States. I can believe that Abraham Lincoln was the first president of the United States. I can write a book that says that Abraham Lincoln was the first president of the United States. But just because all those things might be true doesn't change the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. See, the reality is that in this multiplicity of truth, we've got to recognize that truth doesn't need my validation to be truth. 
truth doesn't need my opinion to be truth. You see, truth doesn't bend to what I believe, and truth doesn't bend to what I de declare is going to be true. For me, truth is established, and my job is to bend my opinion and my worldview around truth. So if we're going to be apostolic disciples, we have got to know the truth of God's Word. We have got to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. We have got to make the Scripture the central defining aspect of how we are choosing to mirror our lives. There's a source of truth. The second thing we find is that discipleship is experiential. Your experiences matter. Things that you wouldn't learn in a classroom, when you experience them in the real, real world, they go to solidify your belief system. You need to have God moments. You need to have experiences that solidify that what we believe is true. It matters the experiences we have. I found on the college campus they could argue with me on doctrine all day long, but they could not argue with me on my experience. You could argue with me and tell me that you don't believe God still does miracles. And I could tell you I was standing there when the girl who had never been able to see a day in her life, when she opened her eyes for the first time. You might be able to argue on doctrine, but you can't argue on experience. You need some experiences. And the third thing that I think is vitally important is that discipleship is relational. It's relational. Yes, we need a relationship with God. We've got to have that established. We've got to have communication with the master. But beyond that, it matters who you do life with. It matters who you do life with. Your peer group matters. Okay? The old adage is you are the average of your five closest friends. If that's true, then I better have five friends who are also disciples that are driving me to be closer to Jesus and not pulling me away. Peer group, who we do life with matters. But maybe one of the most important factors that I want to hit on for just a moment is that our family culture matters. The culture inside of our home, our home life, our home culture, the relationships we have with the people that we do life with every single day matters. I'll make a statement and I do it in all humility as a person who was in youth ministry for six years, but I had an observation. I found that as a youth pastor, it was much easier for me to disciple a young person who did not have parents in church than it was for me to disciple a young person whose parents went to church but lived in a way that was different than the message that we believed. It was easier for me to take a young person who had made up their mind that they're going to be there, not because their parents were telling them they were going to be there. It was easier for me to disciple them and to overcome a home culture that, of duplicitous living. Where church is saying one thing, but what's being modeled in the home is a completely different thing. Sanctuary family, we have got to have spiritually healthy homes. We have got to have spiritually healthy homes. I think about some of the defining things in my life that my parents did that, that worked to create me into who I am today. Probably my earliest spiritual memory that I have as a, as a five-year-old. I, I have to imagine I was about five. So I can remember that my parents had gone to Office Depot and they bought this giant white sticky note pad. I get my love of sticky notes honest, evidently. Because I remember them hanging that giant white pad of paper on the, on the door of my room. And they would go and they would write these verses that we would memorize at night before we went to bed. I vividly remember, I can see the paper, I can see my room where Psalms 23 is written on that paper. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. I didn't learn Psalms 23 when I was a teenager. I learned Psalms 23 when I was a five-year-old. My parents were trying to drive at something. I remember that once a week we would do family devotion. We would sit in a circle and we would pray. And it probably wasn't a whole lot of comprehension that would happen, but it was central to what we were doing. So I became a young person. My parents made up their mind that I was going to be at every spiritual event that was happening for young people, regardless of the cost. I don't know how many thousands of dollars they spent to make sure I was at every youth camp, every NAYC, that I was at every youth event that was going on so that I could be and have experiences that would enforce discipleship. When I was 17 years old, they let me go across the sea, across the Atlantic Ocean to Spain and Portugal on an AYC trip where they didn't have control of what was happening, but they said, we want you to experience, have experiences that will solidify you as a disciple. What I recognize today is that not everybody in this room had the luxury of David and Cindy Saucer, and I thank God for my parents, but I'm telling you today that as a sanctuary family, we are going to have healthy homes. As a sanctuary family, we are going to work together to disciple our families and our kids for the purpose of what God is calling them to be. You are not on an island by yourself. You don't have to just figure this out by yourself. We are going to work to have healthy homes. I've got to come to a close, Brother Hoffy. We're not even going to get to the cross. Ask me about that later. <laughs> Discipleship. Discipleship. The reality today is that there is not a day while we are here on this earth that we ever graduate from being a disciple. Okay? We have discipleship classes. We have our level classes, and I'm so grateful for those and what God is doing to ground believers in spiritual truth. There's never a day where on this earth you're going to receive a certificate that's going to say you have now surpassed the teacher. Go on. It's not going to happen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one, verse 1, I think Paul paints an interesting picture because this is what he says. He says, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, he paints this picture. Brother Marlon, will you help me? Ryan, will you help me? Brother Marlon, congratulations. You are now Jesus. Rest in your promotion. Okay? He said, he said I'm not worthy. Good answer. Okay. But he paints this picture. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, he said that there's never a day when I'm a disciple, you just start walking, you're leaving, wherever you go. He said that wherever Jesus goes, I'm linked arm in arm with Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus with everything that I have. I've committed my life that I'm trying to become like Jesus. I'm trying to live like Jesus. I'm trying to, to follow in step with what his spirit is trying to ask me to do. He said, you are called to follow, and that never goes away. Even if you've been in church for 75 years, Randy Foster, you're still a disciple, and we love you for it. Thank you for your faithfulness. But we're never called to abandon followership of Jesus Christ. But then he links it to something else. He says, I want you to follow me as I'm following him. He says, the picture of discipleship, Brother Ryan, picture of discipleship is that I pray to God that as I'm following Jesus Christ, that there's a moment where I can look over my shoulder and I can see that I'm not on this journey by myself. But as Jesus is leading us where he wants us to go, I pray that I can look beside me and I can see a brother or a sister. I pray that I can see my spouse. I pray that I can see my kids. That as I am committed to following him, that there are people I am bringing on the journey. Thank you, guys. 
Because hear me today, while you will never graduate from discipleship while you are here on this earth, there is coming a day where there will be a commencement speech of some kind, a graduation ceremony of sorts. And I can't promise you in that day that they're gonna play pomp and circumstance. I don't know if we're gonna wear robes and I'm pretty confident we're not gonna have graduation caps. Tassels won't be a thing there, at least that I read in scripture. But there is coming a day when every single one of us are gonna be called by name and paraded across heaven's stage to stand in front of our Savior. <laughs> and in that moment, for those who have given their lives to follow Jesus with everything that you have, we will hear the greatest commencement speech of all as the one that we have lived for, the one that we have tried to be like, the one that we have modeled our lives after as he looks at us and he says, Marlon, well done, my good and faithful servant. Hayden, well done, my good and faithful servant. Brother Burns, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I can promise you that in that moment, there is nothing in this world that you will have had to forsake that is going to be of any value. Because in that moment, there's going to be another divine exchange as we have laid our nets down and we have laid our crosses down. And in that moment, there's one more divine exchange as Jesus says, here's your crown. But here's the deal. We won't hold it for very long because it was never for us in the first place. Pretty quickly, we will cast it at the feet of the one who is worthy of it all. He was worthy of it all as we stand all over this house. My prayer today is that you would make up your mind anew that above anything else in this world, you are going to be a disciple. That you would make up your mind afresh that more than being somebody that's a good business person, more than being somebody that's a good preacher, more than being somebody that's got a powerful ministry, all of that needs to bow to the call that I'm going to give my life to follow after Jesus Christ. All of that needs to bow to the call that says I'm going to model my life after you. I'm going to give some instruction, and then we're going to pray. Give some instruction. Here's what I understand. I know that there's some individuals in this room that you've been in the church for a long time. And as I've been preaching, maybe the Lord has been dealing with you about some nets that you've been holding on to, that it's time for you to just say, you know what, no longer. Some things that you've been wrestling with God over in an altar time and time again, where today needs to be the day. I'm no longer, it's not that I'll never fish again, but the primary definer of my life is not my income, it's not my popularity, it's not my fame. That's not where my value is going to come from. It's going to come from relationship with Jesus. But then there are some others that you're in this house and maybe it's your first time in this church or you've been coming for just a little while and this discipleship concept is a little bit new. I want you to know that the journey starts today. The journey of discipleship, he is not looking for perfection. He's looking for you to take that first step of faith that says, you know what? I'm going to begin my journey of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And he would love nothing more today then if the first step of your journey would be for you to receive the baptism of His Spirit that we call the Holy Ghost. He would love nothing more than before you leave this church today for you to have lifted up your hands and to have had a moment where His Spirit comes and it fills your life, giving you the power to be a disciple. So all over this house, what we're going to do, we're going to do it together because every one of us need to be refilled with the Holy Ghost or we need to be filled for the first time is we're going to pray a prayer of repentance together. 
We're going to ask the Lord to cleanse us of anything, anything, anything that has separated us from Him. Any impure thought, any impure action, impure motives for misplaced priorities. We're going to ask Him to forgive us. When we're done praying the prayer of repentance, I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. And at the end of that, fa- that prayer, I'm going to shout the word hallelujah. When I say hallelujah, what I'm asking you to do is to lift your hands as high as you can get them, to throw your head back, close your eyes, and forget about what's going on around you, and to shout hallelujah at the top of your lungs. When you do that, the Holy Ghost is going to come in this room. And I believe like Acts chapter 4, verse 31, that every individual in the house can be filled or refilled with the baptism of the Spirit. Brother Burns, it's not just for the ones in the altar, but it's about to hit the pew as well, that God is about to do a mighty work. All over this house, would you close your eyes and begin to repent, God? We come before you knowing that we are not perfect. We come before you knowing that we are imperfect flesh, that we have made mistakes, that there are things in our life that would be tempting to keep us from your purpose and your plan. I pray today that you would forgive me, that you would forgive me for impure thoughts. You would forgive me for impure actions. You would forgive me for things, God, that I've I've said or I've done, Lord, that don't bring you glory. I pray that you would forgive me for misplaced priority today where I have put idols in front of you, God. I'm laying all that at your feet today. Let the blood of Calvary begin to flow over my life and wash every bit of that away that I might be pure before you that I might be pure before you here we go every hand lifted right now by the authority of the name of Jesus and by the authority of the Word of God I pray right now that every individual under the sound of my voice with hands lifted high in surrender would be open to a move of the Holy Ghost that they have not experienced before, that the next step of discipleship would start in this moment, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah! Come on, somebody lift up your voice right now. Somebody lift up your voice right now. Come on, let the Holy Ghost begin to fall. Let the Holy Ghost begin to fall. Begin to worship Him with everything that you have. Begin to worship Him with everything that is within you. Come on, I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ above everything else. I'm not worried about title or position or fame or fortune, but above all, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. Come on, if you need the Holy Ghost, lift up your voice right now. Some of our prayer warriors, I want you to look around. And if you see somebody praying, whether they're in the altar or they're in the pew, I want you to go find somebody to begin to pray with. The Holy Ghost is in this room to do a divine, supernatural work. Come on, in the name of Jesus. Come on, in the name of Jesus. This isn't just for one or two. This is for everybody. This is for everybody. This is for everybody. everybody.